The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Tonight on Human Voices Wake Us, we will hear three very different stories that somehow or other, uh, completely by chance, uh, all end up coming around to, or at least mentioning, decapitation. I'm not really sure uh, how that happens, but you will bear with me. The first part, we will go into the life of the artist Caravaggio, and we will look at two of his paintings, um, the one of Judith uh, cutting off the head of Holofernes, and then of David removing the head or holding the severed head of Goliath. And that severed head of Goliath, of course, has Caravaggio's own face on it. And we'll be able to discuss his life and to see how he got to the point where he could put his own face on the severed head of Goliath. Um, In the second part, we will go back in time to the father of history, to an account by Herodotus of Halicarnassus, and what he had to say out of many things, out of the huge compendium of his histories, uh, just one or two pages of his description of the Scythians living around the Black Sea region at the time, and what they did when their king fell ill, and what so happened when their king and their ruler actually died. And then finally, uh, I was going to end the night with the usual bit of poetry, of me reading poetry, but not only do I think I'm coming down with a bit of a cold, but I found uh, somebody who can talk about this even better than I can, uh, without a doubt. And we will hear uh, Ian McKellen talking about one of the most famous speeches out of Shakespeare, uh, the one from Macbeth tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. So let's get down to all of that right after this message. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So let's spend some time tonight with the Baroque or early Baroque artist uh, Caravaggio, who was born Michelangelo Merisi, and his years are 1571 to 1610. He died at the age of 38 on the run from uh, various people in the law for various crimes and infractions, including murder. Uh, He was born, as I said, Michelangelo Merisi, And the book that I'm going to read from tonight is by Peter Robb, and it is simply called M, 
M for that Michelangelo Merisi. And Peter Robb's book about Caravaggio is one of the best biographies of, I would say, of an artist, but just of anybody that I've ever read. Uh, it's very, um, what would you say? You can tell that a human being with a certain perspective uh, is the author of it. There is very little sense of academic or other cold or merely in interested distance going on here. This is somebody who loves Caravaggio, is interested in his life, and has written a very impassioned and very individual book about this very impassioned and uh, individual artist. And just to give you an idea of when Caravaggio lived, uh, 1571 to 1610 are his years. Uh, Michelangelo, the Michelangelo of the Sistine Chapel, uh, lived from 1475 to 1564. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci lived from 1452 until 1519. So both Michelangelo and da Vinci were dead by the time Caravaggio was born. However, the uh, sculptor Bernini was born, uh, lived from 1598 to 1680. So he would have been born only about 12 years before Caravaggio's death at the age of 38. Now, uh, Caravaggio is known for chiaroscuro, isn't he? Or just tenebrism, that uh, wonderful way that he had of painting extreme darks, sort of invaded by extreme lights as well. You can recognize a Caravaggio when you see it. And you can also, I think, uh, recognize someone who knows Caravaggio very well or who has been influenced by him. If you just look at a chronological history of, I guess, uh, European art, uh, you can sort of tell, well, that guy knew his Caravaggio, didn't he? And it's hard to know what to read from Graham uh, or from Peter Robb's book, but uh, it seems good to focus on uh, two of the paintings. And before then, just to read a just to get a sense of how Peter Robb writes. This is just his description of the paintings themselves and what Caravaggio was able to achieve. Again, he refers to Caravaggio simply as M. And Peter Robb says this, uh, you can look long and hard at the paintings. The paintings, the art historians have hammered out a workable canon and a chronology of M's work. It's a great collective achievement, and years and years of patient drudgery lie behind it. A hundred years ago, M's paintings were mostly still rotting in attics and cellars and decaying churches, hidden under crusts, crusts of filth, while M's name labeled scores of clumsy copies and crass derivations by later painters who aped his work. So Peter Robb is saying a century ago, let me just get the date right here of when this book was published. It was published in 1998. So basically the 20th century shows uh, the revival of uh, Caravaggio. Uh, bringing M back to life and sight has been a long, complex, and fraught undertaking. The soot of candle smoke, layers of yellowing varnish, and crude overpainting have been removed from painting after painting. Rotting canvas, cracked paint, ripped fabric 
have been nursed back to stable material existence. Images that seemed beyond repair have come back to life, imperfect but real. There are still paintings to be found, doubts to be settled, works to be reordered. But now you can move through a fairly sure sequence of work and try to match the paintings to the known events of M's life. It's been like this for less than a decade. The paintings are M's great secret. They still have, for a lot of people, the peculiar inaccessibility of the wide open. They delight and disconcert by seeming, like certain works of Tolstoy and Chekhov, to have nothing to do with art at all. They seem to go straight to shocking and delightful life itself, unmediated by any shaping intelligence. The appearance, of course, misleads. And in a time when art was prisoner, first of ideas and then of ideology, M undertook a single-handed and single-minded exploration of what it was to see the reality of things and people. He did it with a rigor that, like the work of Leonardo a hundred years before him, meant as much to the origins of modern science as it did to modern art, more so in a way since what Leonardo wrote about in art only became real in M's hands. Isn't that something to say? Uh, since what Leonardo wrote about in art only became real in M's hands, M rendered the optics of the way we see so truly that 400 years later, his newly cleaned paintings startle like brilliant photos of another age. These images came out of an attention to the real that ignored the careful geometries of Renaissance art as scrupulously as it excluded the dogmas of religion. No other painter ever caught a living bodily presence as M did. And I think especially of his painting of, of Mary Magdalene, which is just of a woman seated uh, on a, sitting on a floor with uh, her dress over her legs, her knees bent. And I think uh, she's looking at a, a necklace or a string of pearls or something that she's holding in her hands. And her head is down. And, uh, and I think that's basically it. You don't see her eyes. And uh, as he's saying here, uh, without the dogmas of religion <clears throat> or of the geometries of Renaissance art, you look at a painting like that and you wonder, well, what is it? Well, it has the name that it's Mary Magdalene, and then suddenly the whole story can fell out for you. And that seems to be uh, what Caravaggio was able to do. It seems to be what an awful lot of artists sometimes found themselves able to do. They discovered the way that people wanted stories or scenes to be told, and they sort of they sort of found a way to go along with those expectations by doing something that was completely their own instead. So that today, uh, Caravaggio might paint something entirely different that would have something to do with media or social media or Twitter or something like that, uh, only tangentially. And on the other side of it, he's actually doing something that is much more interesting than simply some type that is popular in the moment. 
Now, for one reason or another, the, the two paintings that I'm going to read the, uh, about Peter Robb discussing are both beheadings. Uh, in 1595 or 1599, uh, Caravaggio painted uh, the scene of uh, Judith decapitating Holofernes, and this is something that uh, has interested artists for quite some time. And and what Caravaggio was able to do is he paints from life, as Peter Robb is about to say. He's using live models, and he has them sitting and holding their pose for hours and hours, and then trying to figure out how to paint a woman decapitating the head of a man. This is what Peter Robb has to say about it. Painting from life, M had to set up a tableau of the event and compose in real life, with models, what Leonardo had urged. Not a mere sum of individual figures, stud figure studies, but a movement that related the figures and locked them together and paint that directly. And as it's about to say, he didn't. This meant that he did not do preparatory studies, preparatory drawings. He painted straight from life. Uh, nude cavalry battles then were out of the question. Massacres of the innocents and anything requiring heavenly hosts were also out of the question. But events of three or four figures could be managed in a studio. And again, you think of his painting of the call of, of St. Matthew, where it's just Jesus sitting under a window where light is streaming in, and he's pointing over at a table where some guys are sitting and counting coins. You can imagine quite easily how such a scene uh, would be quite literally staged so that it could be made into a painting. Uh, it says, it took longer than a single study and it was harder on the models, holding their frozen action, particularly hard on Felide, the woman who was doing the, the decapitating in this case, arms forever tensed in mid-decapitation, but also on the male in spasm, locked in spasm. After blocking out his composition in real figures, like a photographer lining up a shot, M couldn't simply activate a shutter. He had to paint, and his actors had to freeze for longer than any single sitting could last. A few incisions lightly cut into the wet priming at the start, enough for the needs of M's own visual memory, and just deep enough to show him the contours through the brushstrokes of a prelim preliminary abozzo and the earlier stages of the actual painting, would let M recompose the group precisely after his model's lunch break, or when they showed up again for work the next morning, working over time with no fixed image like a drawing to guide him. So M needs these marks, these incisions in the canvas, which show him where the characters and the people should be lined up and where their bodies should be. The work of painting might bring changes of mind, pentimenti and repainting of details, but slight repositionings of the models too, such that the faint incised grooves where they were visible in the finished paintings didn't always match the figure's definitive outlines so that he was able to change that if he needed to. Judith, in this case, lowered her arm in the final version. He linked the central elements of the image on the canvas by marking out Judith's left shoulder and arm and the one grasping Holofernes' head, and outlining the twisted head itself without the beard, and indicating his radically foreshortened chest. 
On the right side, he outlined the old woman's skull. There's always a woman in this scene who seems just ready and sort of giddily, happily so, uh, ready to just receive the severed head that Judith is about to uh, cut off. And uh, she is without her scarf at her throat. Uh, these were the deepest cuts and the structurally crucial ones. Other markers were likely filled in by the paint. Realism like that, however, could be a trap. There was always a tiny gap between the physical reality of the model and the imaginative reality of the event being shown. Felide Melandroni would always be M's friend, Felide the courtesan, this woman that he's painting as a biblical figure. He would always simply recognize her as his friend, just as in the famous story of him using a dead prostitute fished out of the Tiber as, um, as the model for the dead uh, uh, Virgin Mary, or the, the familiar faces of the men of the apostles around the Virgin Mary's bed who are weeping for her. Um, he would have known, well, this was actually a prostitute, not uh, the Virgin Mary. He would have known, these are my friends who are in my, in my other paintings. And how do you get away from something like that when you paint from life? So she would have always been his friend, Philippe the courtesan, filling in time between professional engagements, maybe her empty afternoons, and for all her wild moments, never quite a Jewish freedom fighter out of the Old Testament. The murdered tyrant was maybe someone M knew from the ball games or the tavern, maybe a professional model, maybe someone found on the street in a way Bellori described for the fortune teller in his other paintings. He didn't lose his head over M's work, of course, and at some point M became aware of a difference between what he saw, what he was painting in his studio in the Palazzo Madama, and what he would have been seeing in, as it were, real life. He had already sketched in the model's convulsed male body and the hideous semi-dead face, a horror far more shocking than the earlier essay on the Medusa shield, when M realized that a really half-severed head, under the tension from Judith's hand, grasping it by the hair, would be pulling away from the body as she hacked through the spinal column, that it would be looking out from the picture plane at a much crazier angle than a live model with a fully attached head could accommodate. And so he relocated the nose and the left eye, raising them and moving them slightly to the right, and adjusting the silently screaming mouth to show the head was coming away from the body. The fine scorings that M left in almost all of his work until he was driven to work from memory at the end. These went unremarked by his contemporaries and they weren't even noticed for several hundred years. They were the tangible sign of his uniqueness. M never drew. It was why, even when he was offered a fortune to do it, he never painted in fresco. M painted from life. And I think uh, this movie might still be on Amazon, but if not, or on Netflix, you should be able to find it fairly easily. I think it's just called Caravaggio. And I think there are even scenes, I think it's from 1986 or so, I think there are even scenes where, where, where you see the staging of paintings like these. Now we fast forward to 1606, seven years later, and this is when uh, Caravaggio has spent his youth, the sort of... Uh, riotous 20s and 30s, getting in brawls and fights and uh, doing the equivalent today of uh, carrying uh, of 
carrying a gun around with you. And all of it has gotten him into trouble and perhaps uh, into jail. But uh, then in 1606, he actually murders someone, whether by accident or intentionally. And it's somebody who is important. And so there is uh, money on his head and anyone can get a reward for killing him in revenge. And so he uh, flees. He is on the road. And the second painting I'm going to talk about is the famous one of him, uh, of the decapitation of Goliath, David cutting off Goliath's head. And this is where Goliath's head has Caravaggio's face. And the young boy, uh, Caravaggio's lover, who in previous paintings is uh, Bacchus, I believe, uh, holding out a cup of wine, a carafe of wine to you, also is uh, Isaac bent over and about to be killed by his father Abraham while just before the angel taps his father Abraham on the shoulder. Um, it is this young boy who is now a teenager who is holding the head of Goliath. So keep that in mind. That's the context of this painting and the description of it that Peter Robb gives. He's on the run. He gives uh, his own face to the dead Goliath. And this young boy that he's known for a long time is uh, David. Uh, what came now in 1606 didn't even look like the shadow of a chance. And what he made of necessity had none of the dazzling innovation of his first things for Del Monte's gallery or for the walls of the Contricelli and Serezi chapels, such as the painting of St. Paul, uh, sort of uh, uh, on the road to Damascus and lying beneath this huge uh, horse or uh, the other paintings that he did for these chapels that are so incredible. Um, it was a kind of involution because from now on, always on the move, M would be forced more and more often to abandon what he'd made, the very principle of art before, which is painting from life. And there would be no one around to really notice the change. No more of his Roman clients loving intensity of gaze prolonged over the changes of the years. His work was so much a matter now of fleeting needs and makeshift circumstances running from the law that you wondered whether he was aware himself of the difference that it made, not having models anymore, and of having to work faster and faster before he moved on. Did he realize how much it threw him back on his past? How much of the work he did now was painted from memory, memories of light striking a head, a hand, memories of faces themselves. M, after Rome, was more and more often forced to paint at speed, and once again the technical exigencies became a principle of art. He had stored so much in his mind in those years of fanatically catching at the traces of the real in a darkened room, and now it was all he had, all he has is memory. He'd be living off of it until the end, hacking away at it, reducing it to essentials, to Beckettian minimum, glimpses in the dark. It was what he wanted to do. It would be, after the arduous years of fidelity to natural things, strangely liberating, despite the horror of what sometimes floated into sight out of the mind's darkness, because now he did the most intimate and desolating work he would ever do, spare, sparely, rapidly, meagerly applied paint, 
so overwhelmingly personal in its tragic intensity that people would always want to see it as among his last things. It has to be someone near death who painted something like this. Though it was only an intimation, a laying down of the parameters for the new work coming, it was a painting of David holding Goliath's severed head. The boy and the head were almost lost in darkness under a few streaks of tent-like roof. There was a crescent moon of Goliath's suspended face, a little more of David's gazing down, half of the boy's bare chest, and the single radically foreshortened arm that grasped the head, a few brief folds of his loosened shirt and his baggy peasant pants, a length of glinting sword blade, nothing more. The image might have been defined by negative, by absences. It was meant to be the triumph of righteousness over power and arrogance. You think of uh, the other Michelangelo statue of David. He's just standing there uh, completely naked with his sling and just looking. Uh, or you think of the other uh, Renaissance uh, statues or casts in bronze of the scene where it's sort of a, a, a giddy teenager um, who's standing on top of a head, where again, it's an excuse to do what the artist really wanted to do in this case of Michelangelo or the, uh, or the uh, sculptors who came before them, of wanting to explore the male nude body and to just describe how beautiful it actually is to them. Uh, but Caravaggio does not want to do that. What is he doing? He is doing something else. It is not triumph. It is not um, triumph at all. Uh, the image might have been defined by negatives. Um, it was meant to be the triumph of righteousness over power and arrogance, and it came out of the dark as an occasion of deep sorrow. Goliath's head was appallingly human in death. The blood darkening on the forehead wounded by David's slingshot, his left eye still flickering with some life, mouth open for one last exhausted breath, discolored teeth glinting dimly, and the boy David wasn't holding it out as a victory offering, but staring down with a tragic regret that was unbearably touching because he was so young. He was actually a boy, not a teenager, and not a pretend uh, grown-up either. Uh, a boy. Uh, there was a sense in which David seemed to be the victim and not the agent of a human horror. How could his skinny arm bear the weight of that still suffering head? The question had a particular force because the severed head was M's and the boy holding it out in sorrow was his friend, his lover, Checho. And Further down the page, Peter Robb says that one of the measures often taken against those wanted for capital crimes uh, was to have their image plastered around so people knew, um, go and get them, you are free to kill them and get a reward for it. And so Peter Robb says that in David, M painted his own wanted poster, a reminder that anyone was invited to kill him and bring back his head for cash. He'd push on without hope or fear then. But if the David were meant to exercise terror by imagining the worst, it didn't. Murder by beheading was something that he treated so far only once, 
in the far-off but deeply felt Judith. And that work was a lot more interested in the beautiful Felid's frown of concentration and her bare forearm hacking away under the old woman's intense stare than in the wide-eyed horror of the man writhing on the pillow and losing his head. So again, I'm, I'm focusing only on these decapitations, but there's so much else in Caravaggio to do. The pleasant, sort of well-lit uh, early paintings about card sharps and fortune tellers, the, um, uh, the Narcissus staring down at himself in the pool, the sort of jokes that you find in there where, again, where the St. Paul painting is almost completely dominated by a huge horse, where uh, uh, pilgrims going to see the Virgin Mary and the Christ Child, uh, the scene is set like basically in an Italian alley, and uh, Mary and the Christ Child are living in a hovel, and the pilgrims there are kneeling so that when the people who come to see it in the chapel are kneeling and staring at the pilgrims' dirty feet and at their dirty asses, basically. All of these things are are fun to find, or just uh, St. Peter being crucified upside down. It's his favorite old man again. Uh, this stark scene of this man being pushed upside down. Uh, the death of the Virgin Mary again, and these horrendous weeping faces of these uh, old men as the apostles. Uh, there's so much going on, but at the end of his life, as, he, as Peter Robb says here, uh, now M was launching into a theme that is of David and the decapitation, or the decapitation of John the Baptist, a theme that would recur again and again after his David, and the next few years he would show it in at least half a dozen more paintings. One of the very first episodes I did here, nearly three years ago, was on Anthony Minghella's 1996 film, The English Patient, which was adapted from the novel by Michael Andace. And if you have seen the film or read the book, you will know that one of the uh, strangest but most compelling main characters in both uh, are not actors. It is the book that the English patient, uh, Laszlo de Almasi, is carrying around with him. And that book is Herodotus, the histories of Herodotus, the first work of history that we have um, in the Western world. And in the course of the film, it becomes, and in the book, it becomes a sort of uh, album. You have the, the book that he's holding, and then there are just cuttings and photographs and little notes and scraps and things that are put inside of it. And it was because of that movie that I first got a copy of the histories of Herodotus, and I've been a fan of it really ever since. And I just wanted to read a tiny bit from it tonight. And the, the version of it, the translation of it that I'll be reading from, is part of the Landmark series. So you'll look for the Landmark Herodotus edited by Robert B. Strassler, and translated by Andrea L. Purvis. And 
Andrea Purvis gives a good long introduction. The good thing about this landmark series is that it is filled with maps and photographs and about as comprehensive an index as you can imagine to help you get your bearings on the ancient world. And uh, Rosalind Thomas, actually, who wrote the introduction, she begins the introduction this way, and this is a good way to uh, introduce Herodotus, who lived from about 484 to 425 BC. And she says this, Herodotus's histories trace the conflict between the Greeks and the Persians, which culminated in the Persian Wars in the great battles of Thermopylae, Salamis, Plataea, and Mycale in the years 480 to 479 BCE, a generation or so, in other words, before Herodotus was writing. He described his theme as comprising both the achievement of the Greeks and barbarians, and also as the reason why they came into conflict. This suggests that he sought the causes of the conflict and factors that took place deep into the past and into the characteristics of each society. He implies that he saw the deep-seated causes in cultural antagonism of Greek and non-Greek, but he went out of his way, and he really, really does. He went out of his way to describe the achievements and the customs of many non-Greek peoples with astonishing sensitivity and lack of prejudice. Perhaps the most famous version of that is just his loving description and chapter on ancient Egypt. Uh, the histories are the first work in the Western tradition that are recognizably a work of history to our eyes, for they cover the recent human past as opposed to concentrating on myths and legends, and they search for causes, and they are critical of different accounts. Herodotus' Herodotus's own description of them as an inquiry, as a historie, has given us our word, history, and he has been acknowledged as the father of history. He also has a claim to be the first to write a major work on geography and ethnography. His interests were omnivorous, from natural history to anthropology, from early legend to the events of the recent past. He was interested in the nature of the Greek defense against the Persians, or the nature of Greek liberty, as well as in stranger and more exotic tales about gold-digging ants or other wondrous animals in the East. The histories are the first long work in prose, rather than verse, which might rival the Homeric epics in scale of conception and length. Shorter works in prose had appeared before, but the histories must in their time have been revolutionary. And I think that one thing it has in common with uh, the Homeric epics is that there is evidence throughout the histories of Herodotus that this was something that was, uh, if not outright performed, at least presented or read to an audience, perhaps in the same way. Uh, that the Homeric epics were performed. And I thought this note from Robert B. Strassler, the editor, is worth uh, just noting as well. The first book in the Landmark series was, the, was that of Thucydides. And uh, Strassler says, although I had a high opinion of Herodotus, when I began work on this edition in 1997, 
I still felt at that time that Thucydides was the greater historian of the two, but that is no longer my view, he says. In fact, I come away from completing this edition of Herodotus with a profound admiration for the histories, which transcends comparison with other works. Many elements of the narrative that at first appeared to me as weaknesses now appear to me to be remarkable achievements, and what I initially saw as arbitrary digressions now stand revealed as cleverly inserted background material that often proves vital to a reader's understanding of later, sometimes much later, episodes. Herodotus's omnivorous curiosity, which struck me as misplaced in a volume of history, now appears a fascinating and valuable asset to historical comprehension. And the vast scope of this tale in time and territory, which seemed so bewildering at first, now proves in the end to be a fitting background for the epic scale of his climax, which is the war between the Persians and the Greeks. Now, what I'm going to read to you tonight is just a very small description that Herodotus gives in, let's see, in Book 4, Section 68 through 72. And this is when he is visiting, or when he is giving his account, anyhow, of uh, the Scythians who live up near the Black Sea region. And um, one of the great stories about ancient Greece, at least that I never heard, uh, until I just saw hints of it everywhere and had to go find out more about it myself, is just the great age of exploration and colonization. It's a, it's a strange thing, at least in the college courses that I took many, many years ago. Uh, you seem to mention Homer, and then maybe you'd mention the tragedians, and then you'd go straight to 5th century Athens and the wars with Persia and all the rest of it. Um, you wouldn't focus quite as much on the centuries between Homer and the great 5th century Athens to think about what, uh, what it was for all of the major Greek cities to send out colonies into the Mediterranean, into the Aegean, and finally as well into the Black Sea region, which is where uh, we will hear Herodotus talking about the Thracians, or the Scythians, I apologize, the Scythians. And ever since then, the barbarian tribes, so-called barbarian tribes, have been a great interest to me. And so I owe Herodotus a great deal for being the first person to write comprehensively and sympathetically about them. And if you want to know more about the, this age of colonization, it seems that the best book, which is also a great popular read as well, is by Robin Lane Fox, and it is simply called Traveling Heroes. There's a good essay at the back of this edition of Herodotus that talks about whether or not Herodotus actually traveled himself to the region of the Black Sea and observed the Scythians uh, on the ground, as it were. And uh, the authors of the essay and the editors seem to suggest that perhaps he didn't, but that he knew people who did, or that he was in the Black Sea region, and uh, again, he knew people who knew this information to be accurate. So let's just imagine this. Um, 
look at Herodotus's dates again. If we can put ourselves back around the year, I don't know, 440 BCE, um, I don't know, the shock, the wonder, the, the fun, uh, the enjoyment it must have been to just suddenly hear uh, an account of how other people live and to have it put in such a way. And this is just a description, a famous description, of what happens when the Scythian king falls ill and uh, the burial rites and all the rest of it. And perhaps in future episodes, almost certainly in future episodes, we can dig more into what Herodotus is doing. Because he does seem to be uh, an encyclopedist on the one hand, it's a huge book, but, are they, but on the other hand, just a great example of sympathy in the ancient world of being able to almost write a a huge compendium just of short stories or almost a, a a travel guide for anyone who might want to follow in his footsteps because I think they do say that he actually did go among the Egyptians and the other peoples some of the other peoples that he writes about but in any case this is uh, Herodotus describing uh, the death of the Scythian king and what happens after his death and his burial. Whenever the king of the Scythians falls ill, he sends for three of the most distinguished soothsayers, and they perform prophecies in the first way that I described. This is earlier in his description on Scythia. It's a wonderful long description of these people. Um, what they generally report is that some person has sworn falsely by the royal hearth, and they accuse one of the town's people by name. In fact, it is the Scythian custom that when someone wants to swear the most solemn kind of oath, he most often does so by the royal hearth. The man named by these prophets is immediately apprehended and brought to the soothsayers, who charge that their prophecy has revealed him to be a perjurer on the royal hearth, and thus to be the cause of the king's present pain. When the accused man protests vehemently and denies the charge, the king responds by sending for twice as many soothsayers. And if they too condemn the man as a perjurer through their prophecies, the man is immediately beheaded, and the first three prophets divide up his possessions by lot. Isn't that strange? The power of the king, uh, apparently they believed or wanted it to seem to be a fact, could be undone just by someone, uh, any old someone, uh, telling a lie at the royal heart, that kind of power. Uh, but in the recently, if the recently summoned soothsayers, in addition to the other three, absolve him of the charge, then other soothsayers come and again more besides. If the majority of all these acquit the man, it is decreed that the first three prophets themselves must die. So the first three prophets uh, better get their story right. Uh, in that case, they are put to death as follows. The soothsayers who have their feet bound, their hands tied behind their backs, and their mouths gagged, are thrust into the middle of a wagon that is filled with sticks and has oxen yoked to it. The sticks are then set on fire, and the oxen are released and put to flight. 
Many of the oxen are burned up together with the prophets, while others are only scorched as they flee when their yoke poles catch fire. Prophets are burned in the same way for other reasons as well when they are designated as false prophets. Moreover, those put to death by the king leave no sons behind, because the king kills all their male offspring too, although he does no harm to the females, because you can imagine what he does to them. Uh, it must have been a hard business being a soothsayer in Scythia around the Black Sea. And you can imagine the relief if uh, they are not proven right, but at least they're gone along with it, and they at least get the guy's uh, belongings instead of having uh, themselves and their sons and all their male offspring killed. Uh, this is how the Scythians swear oaths, no matter to whom they are swearing them. They pour wine mixed with their own blood, extracted from their bodies by stabbing themselves with awls or by making small knife cuts into a large earthenware cup. They then dip a short sword, some arrows, a battle axe, and a javelin into the cup. After this has been done, they declare their pledges and invoke many sanctions, and those directly involved in the act, in the pact, together with their most worthy followers, drink from the cup. This is how they swear a pledge. The kings of Scythia are buried in the land of the Geroi at the site where the Borosthenines become navigable, where the river, the Borosthenines, becomes navigable. Whenever one of their kings does die, they dig a large square pit in the ground there to receive the corpse, which has been prepared as follows. The belly is cut open, cleaned out, and filled with crushed galingale, incense, celery seed, and aniseed. Then it is sewn up, and the entire body is coated with wax. From the royal Scythians, it is carried in, in a wagon to another nation, whose people receive the corpse brought to them, and observe the same practices as has already been performed by the royal Scythians. They cut off a piece of their ears, shear their hair all around their heads, make incisions all over their arms, scratch their faces and noses, and thrust arrows through their right hands. And then these people take the king's corpse in the wagon to another people under Scythian rule, while those who have already received it follow along. And when the corpse has made its rounds to all of them, it comes to the Geroi, who dwell at the farthest boundary of the people under Scythian rule, in whose territory the royal graves are located. They bring the corpse into the pit mentioned earlier, place it on a bed of rushes, and on both sides of it set up spears over which planks of wood have been extended and covered over with rushes to form a roof. Then they strangle one of the king's concubines, and also his cupbearer, his cook, his groom, his principal servant, his courtier, his horses, and his horses, and they bury them all, including the horses, in the remaining open space of the grave, along with the prized possessions dedicated by others, and golden libation bowls, since they use neither silver nor bronze. After they have done all this, everyone enthusiastically joins in building up a huge mound which they strive together to make as large as possible. 
You can imagine this back in the 440s or so BCE. This is almost like uh, their version of YouTube. This is where they can go to hear some of the wilder stories you might imagine. This had to have been some great kind of entertainment for them. Uh, and it says, finally, one year later, they attend to the rites once again. They first choose the most suitable of the surviving servants. These are native Scythians. For all whom the king orders to become his servants must do so. And servants are not bought and sold among the Scythians. Of these, they strangle 50 males and also 50 of the king's best horses. More males, more horses. And then they remove the guts from both the men and the horses. They clean them out. They fill them with chaff and stitch them up again. And next they set up half a wheel inverted on two pieces of wood and the other half inverted on two other pieces and repeat this process until they have erected many of these structures. They then drive thick shafts of wood lengthwise through the horses up to their necks and mount them on the inverted half wheels. And I'll include a link to um, archaeological finds and the, uh, the, the drawings of these finds and, uh, and how they're set up, which shows that Herodotus was fairly accurate in what he is saying here. Uh, the wheels in front hold up the horse's shoulders, while those in the back support the belly alongside the thighs, and both legs hang in the air. Bridles and bits are fitted onto the horses, stretched down over the front and secured with pegs. Then they mount each of the fifty strangled young men on a horse by driving a shaft of wood straight along his spine up to his neck, fixing the lower projecting part of the shaft into a socket, cut into the shaft driven through the horse. And after arranging these horsemen in a circle around the burial, they ride away. Now, isn't that something? Uh, humanity has been around for quite a while by this time, and that is one of the stories that appears in a huge compendium when somebody realizes, wait a minute, I can write down history. It doesn't have to be in a poem. And look at all of the little stories like this one that I can tell Now, as usual, we are going to end the night with some poetry, but we're going to try something new here. I thought that I could talk about Macbeth, specifically about tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, the great sound and fury speech. But then I went and looked on YouTube, and what do you know? There's uh, an incredible clip of Ian McKellen, I believe, before he became Sir Ian McKellen, who in 1979 is addressing the Royal Shakespeare Society, and he is talking about this speech. Now, I don't think that I can uh, outdo Gandalf in this case, uh, let alone uh, Ian McKellen just as a Shakespearean actor and the, um, the experience and the knowledge of the poetry that he had by that time. 
So let's listen to what Ian McKellen has to say about one of the most famous speeches to come out of Shakespeare. Uh, if this uh, workshop's done anything, uh, I, I hope it's, it's scotched the, uh, in my view, wrong belief that uh, Shakespeare's verse is music and uh, all you have to uh, find out is the tune and everything will be all right. Rather, I believe that if you look after the sense, the sounds will look after themselves. I saw Maurizio Pellini play a uh, late Beethoven sonata recently and I had a a strange feeling for about five miraculous seconds that I didn't know whether he was putting the music into the piano uh, or whether he was taking it out of the piano. And acting at its best, Shakespeare, I think, is of that nature, that the actor is the playwright and the character simultaneously. Uh, this can only be achieved by the actor having total awareness of all the complexities uh, uh, of Shakespeare. So if we take a, a speech like uh, Macbeth's last soliloquy, uh, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, which uh, to crudely summarize is, is, a, is a description of total blackness, total despair, uh, that life is finite. Uh, it isn't enough just to say that and put that quality of despair into the voice and just hope it and, and just follow the rhythms. You've got to do many more things as well. You have to think and have analysed in rehearsal uh, totally so that your imagination uh, being fed by the concrete metaphors, concrete images, pictures, uh, can then feed through into the body, into gesture, into uh, timbre of voice, into eyelids, into every part of the actor's makeup. So. That it does seem, as I've just said, that uh, he is making it up as he goes along, although the actor, of course, knows that he isn't. But to start at the top with the first line, and I'll try as far as possible to relate this to blank verse, but it would be impossible for me not to mention uh, imagery and all sorts of other uh, literary devices which we haven't been talking about generally today. Um, Satan says to uh, Macbeth, the Queen, my Lord, is dead. And Macbeth replies, she should have died hereafter, which is a short line. She should have died hereafter, indicating that there should be a pause, I think. And during that pause in performance, uh, with the audience uh, rather around me as you are now, I used to take that uh, advan uh, advantage of that pause uh, to catch the audience's eye uh, and begin the soliloquy, which is uh, Macbeth, me, the actor, to talking directly, sharing my thoughts with you, the audience. Uh, hereafter is, introduces one element of time, the future. Let me get a regular blank verse line. There would have been a time for such a word. De -dum -de -dum -de -dum -de -dum -de -dum. There would have been a time, stressed, time, this speech is about time, for such a word. Word is the last line. Uh, what word? Uh, is it she, the queen? Is it hereafter? Is it time? There's something about that line which trips, in Hamlet's words, tick-tocks like a clock. There would have been a time for such a word. It's leading on to the next line, and here comes the word which is important, tomorrow. And tomorrow. And tomorrow. There are only two words uh, in that uh, uh, line, an irregular line, given weight by re re uh, re its uh, re repetition three times. And the tripping of there would have been a time for such a word slows down on tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow. The rhythm is important. 
It's also a non nonsense word if you say it three times, or if you say it twenty times, like a kid skipping tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. What does that word mean, tomorrow? It's beginning to have the lack of meaning, I think, that Macbeth detects in his own life at this point. Creeps in this petty pace from day to day. And here comes the first metaphor, the first image. And uh, the rhythm is beginning to creep, is beginning to plod like someone plodding along, uh, plodding along a country lane. It's footsteps now, not the tick-tock of a clock. Creeps in this petty pace from day to day. Well, we've had tomorrow. We've now got today at the end of the line. From day to day, but it leads on to the next line, to, not day, but the last syllable of recorded time and it slows up even more ending up with a very important word time at the end of the sentence syllable I wonder if bell isn't the bell of a clock which records time and we get a regular line and all our yesterdays have lighted fools yesterday we've had tomorrow we've had today we've now got yesterday we've got the whole complex of time Macbeth is not just talking about himself he's talking about eternity I'm going to say something about it all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. And that's where the sentence ends, in the middle of the next line. But one has to carry on uh, and speak it as a line and a half. All our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. What is the image there that I must have clearly in my mind so that uh, I can get the right emotion of despair? It's what? It's a fool walking along a dusty path, plodding, creeping, with petty pace. A fool is what? A village idiot? Wandering along a country lane with, what, a guttering candle? I don't know, a lantern? Uh, fool is a pun, of course. Uh, fools, uh, like Lear's fool, Feste, uh, in Twelfth Night are professional entertainers. That will be relevant in a moment, and I have to contain in my mind, as I say the word fool, that it is a pun. See two sorts of fools. That line is completed with the shock of the harsh rhythm of out, out, brief candle. The fool's candle has caught uh, a gust of wind and is blown out and he collapses into a dusty death in the unmade road of Elizabethan England. The last candle or light we saw in the play is uh, Lady Macbeth's candle, uh, which she was carrying in her sleepwalking scene, and she is dead. It's Lady Macbeth's death which is being talked about in the speech. It is the fool's death, village idiot's death. It's going to be Macbeth's death. It's going to be everybody's death. Uh, it's at this time, about this time, that Shakespeare wrote Macbeth that candles were being used in indoor theatres. Uh, and that may be relevant too when we get on to the next line, which is life's but a walking shadow. Walking gentleman is a phrase we still use in the theatre, meaning someone who is available in any company to walk on and play uh, a meagre part. He's the lowliest member of a company. But life is not even a walking gentleman, he's a walking shadow. Less than even the meanest player. And the line is completed uh, by a poor player. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player, that struts and frets his eye upon the stage. And although... Although Macbeth is talking about time, about life, 
Shakespeare is bring, making that, those vast, uh, uh, vast concepts very concrete, very particular, not just to Macbeth himself, but to the actor who is playing Macbeth, because we're now talking about players and the audience who know they are an audience, know that uh, McKellen playing Macbeth is an actor, they are beginning to be drawn into Macbeth's uh, dilemma as Macbeth relates it uh, to a player, to an actor. That's a regular line that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and we're reminded perhaps of the King Cambyses and uh, Marlovian regular verse and people uh, who do stamp out the rhythm as they uh, parade. That struts and frets his hour, a concept of time, upon the stage and then is heard no more. End of sentence, end of thought, middle of the line, however. It is a tale told by an idiot. Idiot um, reaches back into the fool who was walking along the country lane with a candle that went out. Full of sound and fury, end of line. And the last line is signifying nothing. And the beats of the rest of that pentameter are not there because the end of the speech is total silence, total oblivion, total emptiness. So much one could say about it, but just let me run through the last lines, of, the last words of each line, and you will see that they add up to what the speech is all about. Hereafter, word, tomorrow, today, time, fools. Candle, player, stage, tale, fury, nothing. I must have all that in my mind as I'm going through it. Not so that you, the audience, can understand those complexities, because I'm not giving a lecture. I think the poetry and the rhythm and all those devices that Shakespeare uses are not for the audience's benefit, they are for the actors so that having absorbed them into his heart and his mind, he can then express them with all the other things at his command, which are his body, his facial expression, and if the production is working well, the way the uh, production is blocked, is arranged, the way the scenery is painted, uh, and the way the lights are lit. The crowd? The Queen, my lord, is dead. They should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow. And tomorrow. And tomorrow. Creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour up on the stage. And then is heard no more. 
It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.